Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 25 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. traffic warden discovers a man stabbed to death in a parked car. Scotland Yard struggled to find any clues that would link a suspect to the scene. A month later, they receive a call from a head teacher at a college around 70 miles away. Police were told the victim could have been killed as part of an initiation test for the special air service. On the evening of Friday, January 14th, 1994, Mohammed El Sayed had spent the evening with a friend in Bayswater, London, at the Golden Horseshoe Casino. He was down on his luck, currently out of work, but thought some good fortune might come his way. Sadly, it did not. He lost £300 at a roulette table. He left around 10pm. Mohammed drove for around half a mile before pulling up at a give-way sign at a nearby junction. 
the 44-year-old unemployed chef was on his way home to his wife and two children. Mohammed was raised in Egypt, where he worked as a teacher before he emigrated to the UK, specifically London, in the mid-1970s. He found work as a chef, later meeting his future wife Susan. She described him as a tall, handsome man with a charming smile. When the couple married, Mohammed told his partner it was the happiest day of his life. It was love at first sight, Susan would later say. I didn't tell anyone at the time, but I knew he was the man for me. The couple lived in a modest maisonette in North London. Though they didn't have much in the way of material possessions, they were happy, treating each day as if it were their last. Mohammed had been to the Golden Horseshoe Casino before. It was a journey he had made often, and the night of January 14th was no different, until he stopped for the oncoming traffic at the giveaway site. Two young men jumped into his car. One was armed with a commando knife. Taken by surprise, Mohammed was told to stay calm. Don't move, I have a weapon said the young man in the passenger seat. An accomplice was sat behind the driver's seat, out of view. Mohammed was ordered to travel only a short distance by his captors before being instructed to pull over by a junction at Bishop's Bridge Road. Mohammed didn't know what was happening. The young man who was sat in the front passenger seat lunged sideways, slicing Mohammed's throat with the blade. As he struggled, the attacker's accomplice who was sat in the back seat held Mohammed from behind. Mohammed fought to free himself, trying to open the car door, but losing so much blood and being restrained, it was little use. When he tried to call out, the man behind him grabbed his throat, stopping him from screaming. Still bound to the driver's seat, with blood pouring from the wound to his throat, Mohammed tried to grab the knife, but in the struggle, he was stabbed a dozen times in the chest. The knife had been used with such force the weapon had been thrust into the victim all the way to the hilt. The attacker appeared to be going straight for the heart. After Mohammed stopped struggling, unable to cling to life any longer, his killers watched on, captivated and curious. One of the young men said, Jesus, there's a lot of blood. Not that it bothers me. Before they fled, they took Mohammed's glasses and a set of keys. These were their trophies. Reminders of what they had done. The next morning, around 9am, a traffic warden patrolling the streets of West London noticed an Audi saloon car parked off a junction. As he approached, he could see a man slumped over the steering wheel. The driver had been seen earlier by a passerby who assumed that the man must have been sleeping, or perhaps, after a long night out drinking, he decided to sleep in his car. The warden tapped on the window glass, 
but the man did not move. Surprised, the warden again knocked on the glass, but still the man was unresponsive. Now worried, the traffic warden phoned the emergency services, telling them what he had found. Police officers arrived at the scene, expecting to find someone who had just had too much to drink. But when they opened the driver's side door, they found a man in his mid-forties with his tweed jacket soaked in blood, a deep wound to his neck and multiple stab wounds to his chest. It was apparent the driver had been dead for some time, maybe 10 to 11 hours. Upon inspecting the body, detectives realised that his wallet was still in his pocket. They were now sure this frenzied attack was not carried out as part of a robbery. In the unenviable position of notifying next of kin, detectives arrived at the home of Susan El Syed in North London to tell her Mohammed had been stabbed to death in a brutal assault. When speaking to officers, Susan knew of no reason why her husband was attacked as she was unaware that he had any enemies. Detectives were also at a loss to explain what had happened as all they had to go on was the theft of Mohammed's glasses and a key ring, which contained both his car and house keys. To add to her heartbreak, Susan faced some tricky questions. Was her husband involved with another woman? Was it possible he might have been seeing a sex worker? Was he hiding any criminal activity which might have put his life at risk? Susan was certain her husband was not, and the mystery only deepened. Following a post-mortem, a pathologist, Dr. Ian Hill, confirmed that Mohammed El Syed's throat had been cut twice and he had been stabbed 12 times in the chest and once in the arm. Detectives appealed for witnesses, but there were none. There seemed to be no motive for the attack, and furthermore, police could not find the murder weapon. Every avenue of inquiry was going nowhere. That was until Dr. Stephen Moore, head of a college in Oxford, heard rumours from the mother of one of the students that someone attending the college had admitted to killing someone. The previous evening, Almost a month to the day that Mohammed El Syed was found stabbed to death in his car, the student had confessed to his housemates what he had done. Terrified, they told their parents who in turn contacted the head of the college. In a meeting, the 19-year-old student who had made the admission was erratic and Dr Stephen Moore was trying to make sense of what the young man was saying. While he was unsure of what to believe, as a precaution, the head of the college contacted the police. As they awaited the arrival of officers, the student asked Dr. Moore if it was possible they could deal with the murder as an internal matter. He would very much like to continue with his studies, he said. When the police arrived, on Saturday, February 12th, they were told by the student that yes, he had murdered a man somewhere in London, He did not know who he was or where precisely the killing took place, just that he had stabbed a man in his vehicle. 
Unbelievably, he also said he carried out the attack as part of his initiation into the SAS. His friend, a fellow student at the college who claimed he was a member of the Special Air Service, operating in the 2nd Battalion Parachute Regiment, would be able to tell them all about it. After all, he helped him commit the crime. Besides, the student was told by his friend someone from the SAS was on their way to sign a form and he would be released and face no charges for the killing. All of this would blow over soon enough. The detectives for Thames Valley Police could not believe what they were being told and weren't even sure if this admission were true. Still, they followed up the claim, contacting officers from Scotland Yard and reported details of the crime. It just so happened the detectives in London had an unsolved murder on their books, fitting that exact description. Police now had to find out who this other suspect was. How did the pair end up killing a man in London? And what connection, if any, did they have with the SAS? After the murder, Jamie Petrolini and Richard Elsie got a bus back to Oxford where they had been studying. The pair had known each other for four months when they met at Mode Study Centre, a college on George Street. It operates as what is known as a crammer college, where students who had received poor grades during their exams can undertake a period of intense study to catch up to ensure they can get the qualifications needed for university. Both Petrolini and Elsie were there to study, with a view to resit their A-level exams. Advanced levels or A-levels are an education qualification in Britain and required if the student wishes to go to university or simply attain a further understanding of a specific subject or discipline. Richard Elsie hailed from the market town of Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire and Jamie Petrolini came from Grand Town on Spey, a town in the Scottish Highlands. They were from prosperous families, wanting for little, at least in the financial sense. Petrolini attended a private school called Gordonston. The educational institution costs in the region of £12,000 a term, a fact that would go on to be widely reported in the press, with little emphasis placed on where Elsie received his education. Elsie attended Merchant Taylor's School before sitting his first round of A-levels at Dr. Chaloner Grammar in Amersham, Buckinghamshire. He had an interest in sports, camping and the army, often seen in his cadet uniform. Elsie appeared to be many things to many people. He frequented a youth group at the local parish. The attendees described him as charming but anxious. A former girlfriend remembered him as a gentle young man. A school friend said he was a reserved chap, and another bluntly said he was always a little shit. If his account of his past can be believed, he was a disappointment to his parents, Dennis and Madeline. He failed his A-levels, so went to study in Oxford. Jamie Petrolini, born in Inverness, was an only child. Petrolini would later say, I had no soulmates. I was becoming so lonely. 
he spent most of his time with the family dog Jake. Petrolini spoke of other families having a sense of community, as those children had brothers or sisters. He struggled to make friends and couldn't understand why he was not more popular at Gordonston School. While he claimed he had no friends, there seems to be little evidence he faced any bullying. His parents, Arcangelo and Wanda, did right by their son, as best they could. In his early years, Petrolini formed an interest in the military and the Royal Marines. He applied for an army scholarship but was declined. The interviewing panel were unsure of what to make of him, with the report stating he, quote, initially came across as a rather inarticulate, immature boy with a lot of muddled thoughts. Next came replies with depth of feeling. Petrolini was athletic. He enjoyed running, swimming, karate, and had the most success with skiing. He was part of the Alpine skiing team who in 1991 won both the Scottish and British school championships. While he made strides with physical activities, he struggled academically. He failed his A-levels, so it was decided he would move to Oxford to retake his exams through intensive learning at Mode Study Centre. There he would meet Richard Elsie during October 1993. After meeting, the two formed a close friendship very quickly. They were kindred spirits, the head teacher would later remark. Petrolini and Elsie loved playing pranks on other students, often using fake blood to trick their fellow pupils that one of them had been stabbed. On one such occasion, Petrolini acted as if he had just been attacked, squeezing a hidden packet of fake blood through his fingers as he clutched at his throat just as his unsuspecting friends rushed to his aid, with Elsie telling them he was the attacker. The pair bonded over their love of the army, military operations and the Special Air Service, or SAS, as the unit of the British Army are more commonly known. Petrolini wanted to be in the army, and he was told by Elsie that he was secretly operating as a paratrooper, something Petrolini believed wholeheartedly. The pair would black up their faces, dressed head to toe in camouflage, and head out onto the nearby fields. One would hide while the other was on the hunt. The wide game, as they would call it, required the other to track down his opponent undetected. When asked what on earth they were doing, they said, training. The two young men headed to London in November 1993. They went to the Golden Horseshoe Casino, the very casino where Mohammed El Syed was gambling on the last night of his life only a few months later. Security cameras recorded Elsie and Petrolini's entry into the Golden Horseshoe and they spoke with the manager, Philip Nunn. Nunn was introduced to Lieutenant Marcus Taylor and Lieutenant Chris Winter, Petrolini and Elsie respectively. They told the manager that they were CID officers who were investigating a theft. A group of youths had been seen preying on unwitting businessmen. The manager did not believe their claim and had the two 18-year-olds ejected. While on another trip to London, the pair took a room at the Royal Garden Hotel on Kensington High Street, telling the clerk that they were from the army 
the two boys spotted a wedding reception in the hotel, so wandered in uninvited and stole a bottle of spirits. They then walked the mile and a half or so to the nearby Hilton Hotel. As part of a bonding pact, they successfully accessed the top floor and celebrated with a juvenile act. The next morning, the guests on the top floor wondered why their breakfast had not arrived as requested, only to discover that Elsie and Petrolini had stolen the orders that had been left hanging off the doorknobs. Elsie would encourage Petrolini to carry out ever more erratic acts, including stealing, breaking and entering, and impersonating a police officer. The idea of military action Counter-terrorism and covert reconnaissance fascinated the pair, and their passing interest slowly grew to something much darker. Around Christmas, for £30 through a mail-order catalogue, they purchased a commando dagger, for one of their missions, they would say. Discussion about these missions would be argued at length in the impending court case. Petrolini often documented his fantasies of killing someone in a diary which Elsie had bought him. He would call this his life book. In the book, he recorded his thoughts and continuously referred to stabbing someone, but instead used the term slotting, a reference to one of his favourite books, Bravo 2-0 by Andy McNabb. In one entry, he described how he would slit someone's throat below the Adam's apple. This would echo the way Mohammed El-Sayed's life was taken. Petrolini wrote, Slotting a fundamental approach. Behind, hand over mouth, heart once, and hold until dead. After the pranks and jokes the pair had been playing on their friends, Petrolini and Elsie decided on what was later called the ultimate dare by a prosecutor. They agreed to travel to London to kill someone. In a blood brother bonding ceremony, as they would later call it, they each made cuts to their hands before shaking each other's bloody palms. During January 1994, they returned to London to end the life of someone they deemed expendable perhaps a drug dealer or pimp, one of them would admit when interviewed. That evening, they had at first arrived from Oxford visiting the public houses throughout King's Cross on the lookout for someone to kill, someone they thought deserving. They packed a change of clothes, aware of the blood that might be transferred during the crime. When they could not identify anyone selling drugs, they asked a woman in the Flying Scotsman Club if she either knew a pimp or someone who dealt drugs, but she said she did not. Elsie confidently told his companion that they would definitely be a target around London docks, but being unfamiliar with the nation's capital, they were not sure how to get there. They took the underground to Bayswater, where they waited for around 25 minutes. There are varying accounts of what happened next, as Petrolini says they decided to steal a parked car, but couldn't find one. Elsie claims that that was the plan all along. Petrolini claimed Elsie planned to target a single lone motorist when they couldn't find a car to steal. 
Mohamed El Sayed was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, as Petrolini and Elsie decided to kill someone at random. His had been the tenth car that had pulled up at the giveaway sign near the wall where the pair had been sitting. After the attack, Elsie ordered Petrolini to search the body. Apologising to his friend, Petrolini said, Sorry boss, I didn't get it quite right. I'll get it right next time. After fleeing the scene, they got on the bus back to Oxford, and while they were sat on the back seat, Petrolini opened his birthday card. He had just turned 19. Petrolini and Elsie may well have got away with murder, had Petrolini not admitted to the crime. He told some of his housemates what he had done. He showed them a pair of gloves and keys which were covered in blood. Petrolini initially told them he had to carry out the act as an entry ritual into the SAS, like Rambo First Blood, he would say. Administrators at the college were informed, and this information found its way to the police who eventually arrested Jamie Petrolini, taking him to Paddington Police Station where he was questioned. After his interview, Jamie's parents visited their son while he was in custody. He stood to attention when greeting them, telling them not to worry, as the SAS would get him out. After all, he had, quote, killed for queen and country. Petrolini had admitted to the killing, and in the process implicated his friend Richard Elsie. Following his arrest, the knife used in the attack was found in Elsie's room, along with a pair of gloves still covered in the blood of Mohammed El Syed. Both Jamie Petrolini, 19, and 18-year-old Richard Elsie appeared before Marlebone Magistrates' Court on Valentine's Day, 1994. Unsurprisingly, given the severity of the crime, they were told they would remain on remand until the trial. Petrolini was extremely apologetic. He sent letters to his friends, the Prime Minister and even the Queen. However, one of those apologies would never find its way to the home of Susan L. Syed. It was a senseless murder. In January this year, Mohammed El Syed, a father of two, was brutally stabbed in his car in Bayswater. He'd done nothing to provoke his two murderers and was only in the wrong place at the wrong time. The tragic murder bears sinister similarities with fun killers Nathan Leopold and Richard Lube, who were jailed in the 1920s for murdering a 14-year-old. Both these killers, like Elsie and Petrolini, came from wealthy families. Police have struggled to find a motive for the murder. It's believed that Mr El Syed was killed simply as a warped test of courage. The Old Bailey in London was the location of the trial, which would see Jamie Petrolini and Richard Elsie charged with murder. Both defendants pleaded not guilty, However, Petrolini admitted manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. 
In his opening statement during the third week of October 1994, Prosecutor David Calvert-Smith QC walked the jury through the series of events in which Petrolini and Elsie jumped into the car that Mohammed El-Sayed was driving. Following the killing, the pair got on a bus to Oxford. The prosecutor told jurors, when they boarded the bus that night, they had to all intents and purposes committed the perfect crime. He was going to suspect two young men doing A-levels in Oxford. Further details surrounding the circumstances of how they met were presented to the jury, and Calvert-Smith said, Their interest in the army, the paratroopers and the SAS developed, the Crown suggests, into an unhealthy obsession and seems to have resulted in their facing this terrible charge of murder. Jamie Petrolini believed Elsie was an army officer and a member of the Parachute Regiment. He wanted to follow in his footsteps, and this was part of his initiative test. Defence counsel Peter Thornton QC stood firm on the belief that his client Jamie Petrolini was heavily influenced by the commands of Richard Elsie. Thornton would tell the court that Petrolini, who was claiming innocence through an abnormality of mind, was persuaded to do the impossible to kill someone and escape detection as part of the ultimate initiative test. Elsie told Petrolini what to do, and he did it. Only one day into the trial, and due to the defence made by Petrolini, it was no surprise that the case had made national headlines. Judge Neil Dennison made it clear to the jury that they should base their verdict only on the evidence presented in the courtroom and not printed in the tabloids. Acquaintances to both the defendants would recall the pair were not on equal footing in their relationship, as Jamie Petrolini seemed to go along with the suggestions made by Richard Elsie. Also, Elsie often spun tall tales of being in the paratroopers, even showing off his scars, and claiming they were inflicted during missions in the army. Petrolini, on the other hand, was often seen in the road marching up and down, shouting left, right, left, right, left, right. A heavy rucksack on his back, Petrolini then fell to the floor and started doing press-ups in the middle of the street. A fellow student, Tina Dutt testified that Elsie had told her he was, in his words, training Petrolini to get him into the paratroopers. Tina would mention a poem she had read, written by Elsie, which revealed much about his feelings and suggested he was unhappy. Quote, The light inside me is dying. My soul is lying somewhere half to hell. Nothing seems worth living for, I'm not a boy, I'm a machine that lives. No feelings, in a shell that protects me. Where is the real me? Is it hiding my pretend self, or have I buried it so deep I can't find it anymore? I'm a child with his sister in the park, throwing snowballs, laughing, calling for help from mummy or daddy. But then I return, and the memory's with me. The violence, pain and sister lying in the rain, blood everywhere, 
on my clothes, on the car, on the road, on my soul that is now in hell. Hell is in my mind, and my mind is holding my soul like a vice. I have become an animal, with only one thing on my mind, to live and let die. The jurors were told about the admissions Petrolini made following the incident. Luke Munton often went to the Switch nightclub, a venue that was also frequented by Petrolini. While at the club, Petrolini told Munton he was in the SAS, a claim that Munton considered untrue, before the admission was just as quickly retracted by Petrolini, saying he shouldn't have mentioned it. Further admissions were made, but they became increasingly morbid, and it was the night following the killing when Petrolini was celebrating his birthday that he revealed what had happened. Munson wasn't sure if the admission were true, telling the jury, quote, Petrolini told me he had been to London with some regiment and said he had got into a car with a businessman or an Egyptian and stabbed him. He described what happened in the car, and said blood was spurting out like in the movies. On the way back, he said he felt quite big, because no one else knew apart from the person with him, and he felt like he was on a high. Andrew Connor and Jonathan Rouse, who live with Petrolini, testified that their housemate told them what he had done. The witnesses weren't sure if it was a joke or not, but soon realised that after Petrolini had a prolonged conversation with his mother and father over the phone, getting increasingly upset, Petrolini was, in fact, telling the truth. While it was indeed true that Petrolini had been one of the two people who had ended the life of Mohammed El Syed, the reasons why were not so easily understood. Petrolini had told Andrew Connor and Jonathan Rouse that the killing was a requirement to gain entry into the Special Air Service. Andrew Connor testified, quote, He implied that anyone joining the SAS would have to pass such a test. Jonathan Rouse told the court that Petrolini had produced a pair of bloody glasses and keys, which the defendant said he had taken as, quote, mementos. Petrolini transferred one of Mohammed El Sayed's keys to his own key ring as a reminder. Also, he showed them the pair of gloves he had worn on the night of the attack. Petrolini described himself as a demigod and that he had proved himself, motioning his finger across his throat. Unnerved, one of the housemates barricaded themselves in their room. Jonathan Rouse told the court that he put a bench in front of his door when he went to bed that night. Jonathan phoned his mother to tell her what had happened and she at first contacted the police. Although Jonathan's mother explained to the officer on duty what her son had told her, the officer said that it was unlikely and impossible to verify. Undeterred, she then contacted the head teacher at the college who then took action to find out the truth. Following his arrest, Petrolini and one of his friends Andrew Connor remained in contact while Petrolini was on remand at Belmarsh Prison. In a letter, 
the alleged murderer wrote from his prison cell that he felt like the victim, and Richard Elsie had, quote, got inside my head. I think he is a psychopath, Petrolini wrote. He described his co-defendant as a real-life Hannibal Lecter. In spite of his crime, he would write that now that he was incarcerated in the lead-up to his trial, Petrolini had lost interest in becoming a soldier. Instead, he wanted to be in a band. I've got what it takes to be Kurt Cobain, he wrote. Cobain, singer of the grunge band Nirvana, had taken his life earlier that year. Petrolini's correspondence was littered with snippets of lyrics from both Nirvana and Pearl Jam, and Petrolini even sent his friend Andrew Connor a poster he had obtained of Nirvana while he was in prison. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Dr. Stephen Moore the head teacher of Mode Study Centre in Oxford, where the two defendants attended, summoned Jamie Petrolini to his office after being contacted by Jonathan Rouse's mother. Asking the student if he had killed someone, at first Petrolini failed to answer him, instead talking about the SAS and how he needed to prove himself if he wanted to be initiated. Becoming frustrated, Dr Stephen Moore again asked, and again Petrolini provided a response that did not address the question. It was after being asked multiple times that Petrolini finally admitted to the killing. The police were called to the school, and it was then Petrolini told them that Elsie was an officer in the SAS, 
they committed the crime together as part of the initiation test. A week into the proceedings, and the court was played a cassette recording of Jamie Petrolini claiming he was being controlled by his co-defendant. Petrolini explained how the killing had made him feel empty and hollow. Quote, I feel as though I was doing things against my will and against my morals because I was being controlled by another person. During one in the series of recorded interviews, Petrolini would also say, At the time of actually doing it, it didn't seem I was doing anything wrong. He was asked about the sort of relationship he had with Elsie. He said in the past he contemplated a homosexual relationship, but it was just platonic. As the recording echoed through the courtroom, Petrolini's voice could be heard explaining to police how he told his housemates, his parents and the principal at the Oxford College what he had done. Recounting the conversation he had with his mother and father, Petrolini at first told them he was no longer interested in the armed forces, specifically the parachute regiment and the SAS, that he had been so interested in. All his applications had been withdrawn. His parents were disappointed, asking Jamie what else he was going to do. The upset Petrolini's parents felt would be like a drop in the ocean, compared to the dark secret he then revealed. He told them as part of an SAS initiation, he killed a man. In the recording played to the court, Petrolini said he had a deep relationship with his parents as he recounted their reaction. They knew their son was not lying. Although aware he had taken a life, Petrolini said he had been absolved of his actions because he had admitted what he had done. Petrolini seemed at peace. Between myself and God, I have worked out that I had confessed, and as far as I was concerned, I would be forgiven. He then went on to detail his plan for redemption. I have worked out what I would do in return, was to put as much back into the community as I could, to make up for what I had done. I will go in the summer to a mission or work with the Red Cross. Jamie Petrolini took the stand the next day, and upon entering the court he kissed some rosary beads and raised them towards his parents. The defendant spoke about his upbringing and was asked if he interacted much with the other children while he was at school. Petrolini said he did not. His counsel Peter Thornton QC asked, did you feel part of a group of boys of your age? No, sir. How did you feel? Thornton asked. Very lonely, Petrolini replied. He said that during his school days, he cried himself to sleep most nights. From the public gallery, Jamie's father sat listening to the testimony. He averted his gaze, staring at his feet. Arcangelo Petrolini raised his head as the tears flowed down his cheeks. Jamie Petrolini had always been fascinated by the army. He said, 
I had aspirations to join the Royal Marines since I was 14. He had read and loved Andy McNabb's book Bravo to Zero, which follows eight men in the Special Air Service during the Gulf War. The then 19-year-old told jurors about the circumstances in which he met his co-defendant and how Elsie said to him that he was born of the devil and in league with Lucifer. Petrolini believed that his friend had travelled to Iraq on missions for the SAS, rescuing a member of the American Special Forces. Elsie was also said to have claimed he threw to Baghdad and Kuwait on missions for the army. Petrolini was questioned by Elsie's defence counsel, Conrad Sigrot QC, about his client. He asked how, if Elsie had been to several foreign countries rescuing any number of notable people as he claimed, did he get lost when the pair were looking for the docks in London before the killing? It was ridiculous, Seagrove said, to think that a student resitting their A-level exams could be in that position. Petrolini simply replied, he was perfectly plausible. I was told what was going to happen and carried out what I was ordered to do. I had some inability to question what I was being told by Elsie. I felt I was under Mr. Elsie's control. The killing which the two young men would carry out was, quote, sanctioned by the SAS, Petrolini told the jury. He was informed of the plan in a McDonald's restaurant. The pair would cement their pact in a ceremony where they each sliced the palms of their hands before shaking them. We had fabricated a story that we had been in a fight so we didn't have to explain about being blood brothers because it was a very personal thing, Petrolini would tell the court. Conrad Seagroke QC dismissed this, saying it was nonsense. Not soon after the details of the bus journey home following the killing were accounted, Petrolini's mother Wanda, who was in the public gallery, collapsed and had to be carried from the court. The following day she would return, this time taking the stand. Wanda told jurors of a lengthy and rambling phone conversation she had with her son while he was still in Oxford. She said, He was going on and on about the military and the paras, and he wanted nothing more to do with it. He said, you don't know what's going on down here. You don't know what people do. He said that they went out at the weekend and murdered people. Wanda Petrolini was unaware her son was unhappy when he went to Gordonston, believing him to be content and only noticing a change in his behaviour when he began studying in Oxford. Both Wanda and her husband went out to dinner with Jamie and his new friend Richard Elsie. She found the situation, in her words, very awkward. Her son's best friend barely spoke, but Jamie told his parents that Elsie was part of the SAS. His sister had taken her own life and both his parents were dead following a car accident. A forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Nigel Eastman, testified that Jamie's mental state was, quote, vulnerable to disintegration at the time of the killing 
and he was exhibiting early signs of schizophrenia when Mohammed El Syed was killed. The expert witness was one of a handful of doctors who testified that there was nothing to suggest that Petrolini was a naturally violent person. They concluded it was Elsie's influence on a young man who was clearly mentally unstable that inspired him to carry out the act. This was something that Petrolini himself had acknowledged, telling the court he was unable to break away from the friendship he had formed with Richard Elsie. At the start of November 1994, the Old Bailey heard that Richard Elsie had been the influencing factor behind Jamie Petrolini's involvement in the crime. But when Elsie took the stand, he said he was outraged at the allegations. He acknowledged that he had lied. Lied about his parents being dead, lied about being in the parachute regiment, and lied that his sister had taken her own life. In fact, he did not even have a sister. Yes, he was a liar and a cheat, he would admit, but he was telling the truth now, and that's what mattered. He spoke of a traumatic childhood where he was beaten by his father and made to feel like an embarrassment by his mother. This was the reason why he told everyone they were dead. Elsie's diary was presented to the court, and on the day of the killing it said, London on Friday, with an exclamation mark. Queried why this was, Elsie said that he and Petrolini had planned to travel to London to steal a car and see a stripper, utilising a friend's travel pass and a stolen credit card. Elsie was adamant there was no relevance to the diary entry as they had no plans to murder anyone. In his version of events, dressed in all black with a black leather jacket, black boots and black baseball cap, he set off from Oxford to London with Petrolini. He noted this was what he typically wore. After visiting a peep show in King's Cross, he was dared by Petrolini to carry out a carjacking in which he would, through the threat of physical violence, steal the vehicle. Elsie told the court he did not have the guts to carry it out. Before he knew what was going on, Petrolini had already jumped from the wall the pair was sat on, getting into the front passenger seat of Mohammed El Sayed's car and stabbing him to death. Elsie said he certainly did not hold Mohammed in the front seat when the attack was underway and was not even in the car. Consultant pathologist Dr. Ronald Hall testified that he would expect heavy bruising to the neck if Mohammed was strangled as he was being attacked. However, there was none present. This said there was an incredible amount of damage from the knife. Elsie did, however, admit to entering the vehicle, touching both the chest and face of Mohammed El Syed. This was why there was blood present on his gloves. This admission was at first told to Detective Sergeant Dale Wilde when Elsie was first arrested. D.S. Wilde told Elsie he should wait until a solicitor was present, but Elsie ignored the advice. While the two were alone in the police car on the way to Belgravia police station, Elsie said, I didn't know he was going to kill him. The car stopped at traffic lights. Jamie got in the car and it went round the corner. I didn't know what was happening. Jamie was hitting the man. 
I got in the car and he was stabbing him. It's not my fault. Jamie did it. While in the mind of Elsie's defence counsel, this evidence at least casts some doubt on the story of Mohammed being held by his client, there still was the problem of the weapon being found at Elsie's home, blood found on Elsie's gloves, and the question that was even more pertinent. If Elsie was innocent, why did he not contact the police after the attack? This question has never been answered in any rational way. Elsie testified that after the attack, Petrolini had changed. He was menacing and unstable. Asked if he continued to see him, Elsie said he did, but he no longer considered them friends. David Calvert Smith QC Prosecuting brought up the book Bravo 2-0, which had been mentioned earlier in the trial. The prosecutor asked Elsie if he and his co-defendant had read it. Elsie agreed that they had. The Crown's theory was that the killing of Mohammed El-Sayed was inspired by a passage in the book. Blood was found in the back seat. The prosecutor claimed that Elsie had held his hand over the victim's mouth and neck while he was being stabbed. Calvert Smith then recited a passage from Bravo 2-0. It read, The rest of us would be up also to help with the killing by covering their mouths to stop the screaming. To highlight his point, Calvert Smith read a further portion of the book. In reality, you have to get hold of his neck, hoik it back as you would with a sheep, and just keep cutting until you've gone right through the windpipe. Elsie was adamant that he took no inspiration from the book. He played no part in the murder. He was under the assumption that they were going to carry out a carjacking. The only reason why there might have been blood on his clothing was that he had got into the vehicle afterwards to check on the victim. Elsie now admitted that he had touched Mohammed, but only to try and stop the bleeding. Elsie did confess, however, that he might have transferred blood into the back seat when he retrieved a bag from the back of the car. David Calvert Smith QC remarked Elsie must have been concerned for Mohammed's welfare, as the defendant had claimed he tried to stop the bleeding. The prosecutor asked Elsie that surely then he called an ambulance. Elsie said he did not. He was too scared. Elsie claimed that Petrolini had told him that he would rape and murder his girlfriend if he told anyone about what had happened. After a three and a half week trial in a packed courtroom, on November 8th, 1994, the jury came to a decision. The court was told that neither defendant had a history of violence and psychiatrists could find no indication of psychopathy or mental illness on the part of Richard Elsie, though some experts suggested that Jamie Petrolini exhibited early signs of schizophrenia. This was heavily disputed by doctors on behalf of the prosecution. It took the jury of two women and ten men five hours. Richard Elsie was found guilty of murder by a unanimous verdict. 
his co-defendant Jamie Petrolini, who had admitted to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, was also found guilty of murder by a 10-2 majority. There were cries and sobs from the public gallery as family members from both the victim and the two guilty men watched the verdicts be handed down. A shout of yes was also heard from Mohammed El-Sayed's wife as she began crying. Richard Elsie's parents could not face the fate that awaited their son, so left the courtroom early. Richard Elsie began to cry. Jamie Petrolini remained unemotional, possibly unaware of what a guilty verdict meant. A life sentence. Peter Thornton QC, who had been defending Petrolini throughout the trial, reiterated that his client was coerced by Elsie, telling the judge during mitigation that Petrolini was obsessed with his friend. He had not committed any unlawful acts prior to the two young men meeting and said it was the relationship with Elsie that led, ultimately, to this terrible offence. As they were each handed a life sentence, Judge Neil Dennison told Elsie and Petrolini, You created a world in which you both played out your fantasies. That obsession led to the brutal and senseless slaughter of a complete stranger who just so happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was recommended that Elsie and Petrolini each serve at least 18 years before they were considered for parole. Susan El-Sayed was interviewed outside the court. She said the verdict was excellent, though she could not forgive the young men that took away the life of her husband. I will never forgive them, never forgive them. To the day I die, never. Do you understand why they did it? Do I understand why they did it? No, I don't understand why they did it. He was a wonderful husband and father to the kids and I will miss him forever and ever to the day I die. They should hang, Susan L. Syed would go on to say. Their fine clothes and posh ways won't be able to hide the fact they are scum of the earth. I may be poor, but at least I am decent. They are nothing. If I could, I would put a rope around their necks and pull hard. Susan also called for a ban on the sale of commando knives like the one that was used to kill her husband. Quote, What do people want with knives like that? They shouldn't be able to just walk into a shop and buy one. I want what has happened to me to not happen to anyone else. Further comment was made by the detective who led the investigation. Well, they're murderers. Whether or not they're evil people is difficult to say. I think perhaps they are. They were living in a fantasy world. They thought they were in the SAS. They they were doing something which they thought perhaps the SAS were doing on a day-to-day basis. And they tried to take that into real life. Well, that just is unbelievable. The two young men with an education like they they had the opportunity to have to come up with a kind of fantasy world they were living in and go out and kill somebody at random. Elsie was um, the ringleader, is it fair to say? 
Well, difficult to say. Both men have been found guilty of murder. Both men are equally guilty in the eyes of the law, and I think that's the way we should look at it. But Petronini was easily influenced. Well, the jury didn't say that. The jury came back and said that Petrolini was guilty of murder, as was Elsie. Is it possible to say what was the motivating influence behind this awful crime? Do you think it was an obsession with the army, as the judge said? Yes, they were living in a fantasy world. They were living out what they thought the Special Air Service were doing on a day-to-day -day basis, what the paratroopers were doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is what motivated, if there can be a motive for this type of attack, that is what was behind it. Arcangelo and Wanda Petrolini left the Old Bailey through a side entrance. However, a statement was provided to the press through the family solicitor. Over the past nine months, we have had to live with the knowledge that our son played a part in a terrible criminal offence. This has not been made any easier by the knowledge that Mr El Syed was a completely innocent victim and that as a result of this tragedy... Not only was his life ended, but also his family deprived of a husband and father. Our feelings of regret about this tragedy and sympathy for his family are so deep that we have great difficulty in finding the words to express them. Although this has been a tragedy for three families, we acknowledge that theirs is the greatest loss. The past months have been very difficult ones for us, and the future is unlikely to be any easier. Author of the book Bravo 2-0, Andy McNabb, or Stephen Billy Mitchell as he is otherwise known, was interviewed about the crime during a press tour for a new book he had written called Immediate Action. This book was almost blocked by the Ministry of Defence as it was said to contain information that had threatened national security. McNabb spoke to a reporter for the Guardian newspaper about the case. He said, The Petrolini fantasy was a sick one. It was just unfortunate that the case came up when Bravo to Zero was at its height. A lot of people have quite healthy fantasies about being in the regiment, whether it is trying to chat up a girl downtown or whatever they're trying to do. But there's always some fruitcakes. Emotions were running high soon after the trial as members of the public were quick to anger. During a transmission of BBC2 programme Video Nation Weekly, a trainee surgeon at the Aberdeen Royal Infirmary was being recorded as part of a year-long documentary, filmed at different times of the day in different locations, almost a video diary or video blog. When the trainee surgeon came to learn of the crime, in the presence of the camera, she said that Elsie and Petrolini should be hanged until dead and have their eyes gouged out. The public was surprised at such a stark admission, finding the comments disturbing, coming from someone that should be preserving life and not condemning it. The surgeon was quick to issue an apology. However, members of the public felt the retribution she mentioned did not go far enough. Some papers, most notably the tabloids, felt that Britain had become too soft on criminals and the sentences that were handed down.
Only a month after being sentenced, Jamie Petrolini was interviewed from his prison cell. He continued to blame the crime on Richard Elsie, saying, Can you think of how I felt when I realised what my best friend had done to me? He is a really, really evil bloke. All I wanted was a friend. Petrolini said he was not a violent person. He had just been pushed to carry out the crime. He was under Elsie's spell. Quote, I am a chilled out, mellow, friendly kid. If you want a picture, get a drawing of a really cool teenager with hearts and peace and love and empathy all around the edge, because that's me. The interview would detail an isolated childhood in which Petrolini felt he had, quote, zero contact with humans. The remote village where he was raised in the Scottish Highlands was, he claimed, a crucial factor in his development, and he was really, really friendly. This meant he was not as wary of people and their propensity to tell this hippie, as he labelled himself, any lies or use his naivety for their own purposes. In May 1995, seven months after Petrolini and Elsie were sentenced, journalist Aaron Hicklin released a book titled Boy Soldiers. Through extensive interviews with witnesses and experts, Hicklin detailed the events of the crime, along with arguing that Jamie Petrolini was not as culpable for his actions as the jury at the trial were led to believe. In fact, the author argued, Jamie Petrolini is no more legally responsible for the murder of Mohammed al-Sayed than a child would be. Nicolin believed that Petrolini was suffering from a mental illness at the time of the killing and was not responsible for his actions. Psychiatrists acting on behalf of the defence raised this point. However, expert witnesses for the prosecution argued the opposite and the jury agreed. Petrolini's parents were approached for further comment after the trial. However, their response was brief. There is nothing more to say. Please just leave us with our misery. So where are we now? After serving 12 years, Jamie Petrolini was transferred to a psychiatric unit in Scotland after being diagnosed with schizophrenia. While incarcerated, there were occasions when those responsible for Petrolini's care were concerned at his behaviour. Only two years after he was sent to prison, psychologist Dr Copstake observed that he seemed vacuous, confused and unable to cope. At the start of the following year, 1998, the prison psychologist did indeed believe that Petrolini was suffering from the early stages of schizophrenia. The prisoner was then reviewed by several doctors and psychologists over the intervening seven years. He found it hard to agree on whether treatment was needed at a secure hospital rather than a prison. In 2005, he was transferred to Broadmoor Hospital and the following year moved to a secure facility in Scotland to be closer to his parents. 
His family campaigned relentlessly for the case to be reopened and the verdict re-examined. Six years after that, in June 2012, his conviction for the murder of Mohammed Al-Sayed found its way to the Court of Appeal at the Royal Courts of Justice in London. Before the proceedings, Petrolini's father Arcangelo spoke with the Express about his son's diagnosis and his frustrations with the delay in a diagnosis being confirmed. Arcangelo Petrolini said, My son was ill and nobody recognised that, so I hope justice will prevail because he has suffered enough and has paid what he has had to. This conviction should not be murder. Hopefully it will be changed to manslaughter as the original plea. We will never give up. They kept him for 12 years in prison when all along he should have been in hospital. Psychiatrists were going to see him and said, You are okay. There is nothing wrong with you. We wrote so many times to psychiatrists and MPs for years because we saw that our son was not well and they kept him there. It was a bloody disgrace to justice. It is Elsie that should have been kept in. Presiding over the appeal was Lord Justice Alan Moses, Justice Henry Globe and Recorder of Birmingham at the time, Judge William Davis QC. It was argued Petrolini's abnormality of mind substantially impaired his responsibility for the killing. Evidence was presented which showed that he was in the prodromal stage of mental illness when he committed the crime and was unable to make decisions for himself. Professor Nigel Eastman, previously Dr Eastman, who had testified at the original trial that Petrolini was in the early stages of schizophrenia, now confirmed that the appellant's symptoms had indeed progressed further. Paul Taylor, acting on behalf of Petrolini during the appeal, argued that Elsie preyed on his client's vulnerability. The Court of Appeal were told by Taylor that following a prolonged period of examination of Petrolini's mental state, evidence now gathered strongly supported the assertion that Petrolini exhibited the signs that he was suffering from the early stages of schizophrenia when, with Richard Elsie, he killed Mohammed El-Sayed. He became a clone of Elsie, Paul Taylor said. He put things in his head and he soaked it up. Elsie took a sledgehammer to his personality. As the jury at the time were unaware of the acute diagnosis and had more prominent symptoms been present at the time of the crime, this would have afforded a defence in the case of the killing. Lord Justice Moses, one of the three judges who decided Petrolini's fate and gave judgment on the case, said, He was only 19 when he had the misfortune to come under the influence of Elsie when he was a student at a cramming college in Oxford. He was seeking to find an identity and the tragedy was the one he found was fixed under the influence of Elsie. The development of his symptoms after the killing cast light on his condition at the time, but there was ample evidence of the development of his condition before he went to cramming college. There were disturbing episodes when he was a pupil at private school. That was the explanation for this terrible killing of a wholly innocent man. He was not able, because of his illness, to make decisions for himself. This evidence was not available in its present format trial, 
and it is plainly capable of belief and plainly establishes his responsibility was diminished at the time of the killing. We allow the appeal, quash the verdict of murder, and substitute a verdict of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. Earlier that year, in February 2012, Richard Elsie was released. The 36-year-old had served 16 years. On the subject of his release and Petrolini's appeal, Susan L. Syed spoke with the Sunday Express. She said, I had not been told they had been let out of prison, and that is very upsetting. My life was put on hold that day, and sometimes it comes flooding back. Susan did not remarry and dedicated her time to raising her two sons who had been left without a father. I can remember it vividly, she said. It was a one in a ten million chance that they picked on my husband. It could have been anybody. They are posh and will have money from their parents to get on while it has been a real struggle for me to bring up my boys on my own. Mohammed's widow Susan reflected and spoke about her husband. It happened a long time ago, but I still think about it all the time. You have good days and bad days. I miss him a lot. Thank you for listening. A special thank you goes out to this week's Patreon producer, Adrian Thornbury, and everyone who supports us through Patreon. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.